Hello and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And a slight delay to this week's episode because we've been gallivanting around the countryside. Yeah. I went back home to Queensland for a little bit um, to see my family in the midst of a COVID outbreak. It was very intense. (laughs) It was intense, but worth it. Um, I did not encounter any COVID. Great. So that's good. But I am vaccinated, so everything is fine now. And Helen was away on the weekend. I was. She was out in the bush. (laughs) Yes, yes. I was out east. Out east. In the forest. Near Moi. Oh, God. We've found something out. Yeah. That in our episode about what we called the Mo incest case, we were pronouncing that wrong the entire time. And it's Moi. And we apologise to the good people of Moi. It's too big of a mistake to fix. Yeah. It's gone now. It's done. It is what it is. But it's spelled M-O-E. In what world? Put a Y on the end. If you wanted to be Moi, you need to put a Y on the end. It was, like, so inconspicuous, we didn't even think we could be pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. Today's case, we are back in New Zealand. I guess tests our definition of a crime. No one was really ever held criminally responsible, but, you know, I would say that there was some kind of criminal behaviour, maybe, or at least criminal negligence. Mm -hmm. You guys can decide for yourself after this case if you think we've delivered the correct content at all. Mm. Well, we don't even know, so... Yeah. We'll admit that straight up. In 1977, Air New Zealand began operating sightseeing flights to the Antarctic. Departing from Auckland, the flights would head south, sweep across Antarctica, and then fly back to Christchurch in an 8,630-kilometre round trip. The flight was one of few of its kind, a unique experience, attracting tourists from all around the world. On the morning of November 28, 1979, 237 of these tourists excitedly boarded Air New Zealand Flight 901, but their flight would be cut tragically short, as disaster struck just five hours after takeoff. Air New Zealand Flight 901 would leave Auckland International Airport at 8am and arrive back at Christchurch 11 hours later at 7pm to refuel before carrying on back to Auckland. The flights had an Antarctic guide on board, usually someone who had explored the landscape before who would point out various features and scientific information over the aircraft's public address system. On the day in question, New Zealand explorer Sir Edmund Hillary was expected to provide the in-flight announcements, but after a last-minute change, he was replaced by his friend and mountaineering companion, Peter Mulgrew. I must stop you here. Mm. Because I have this running theory that no Australian knows who Sir Edmund Hillary is. After we talked about this, I went away and I did my own research. I asked a couple more Australians. Crickets. Really? Yes. So, for all of you Australians listening to this episode, this is significant because Sir Edmund Hillary was the first person, along with his Sherpa, to climb Mount Everest. Oh. In like the 50s. The first person? Yeah, ever. Damn. And he was from New Zealand. He's a New Zealander. We, uh, we own the first person <laughs> to have climbed Mount Everest. Damn. And he's on the $5 note. I will admit I knew the name. I didn't know of those achievements. Yeah. And this would have been after he climbed Mount Everest. Yeah. So. He was a superstar. Yeah. I asked my boyfriend on the weekend who, if he knew who Sir Edmund Hillary was, he's Australian. And he was like, I don't know. Is he a, is he a musician? And he was thinking of like Sir Elton John or something rather, you know, <laughs> that was as close as you all I've gotten. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, no, he was a mountaineer. 
<laughs> he climbed mountains. He got so. the first letter right. Yeah. Mm, musician. Mountaineer. Mm, similar. So that's all. Thank you for coming. Well. To I'm, my Sir Edmund Hillary TED Talk. I'm glad we have that background. Yeah. The other quick thing is this is rather attractive of an offer because Auckland is in the North Island and Christchurch is at the very bottom of the South Island. If you're going to be going from Auckland to Christchurch, you might as well see Antarctica. That's very true. Yeah. Because you're still you're traveling between... You're going to a different island at the end. Yeah. You disembark at a different location. Mm, so, that's so true. If you were, like, doing a New Zealand holiday... Yeah. You could be like, oh, we'll just get this flight to Christchurch that just happens to take 11 hours. Yeah. And we'll go to Antarctica. That's yeah. true. That's all my New Zealand input. Continue. In order to provide passengers with good vantage points... The flights were only 85% full, with a number of seats along the aisle often left vacant in order for passengers to move around the cabin more freely. Tickets on Flight 901 cost 359 New Zealand dollars at the time, which would be around 1,300 New Zealand dollars today. So, it's quite an expensive way to get to Christchurch, but maybe worth it. I feel like normally it takes under an hour, and it does not cost nearly as much. Mm. On the 28th of November, 1979... Captain Jim Collins and co-pilot Greg Casson were in the cockpit. While neither had flown to Antarctica before, both were experienced pilots and met the qualifications for the flight. 19 days before departure, Jim and Greg attended a briefing, where they were provided with a copy of the flight plan from a previous flight. However, this plan contained an error, which would later prove to be fatal. At 7.21am, the coordinates for the flight were entered into the computer of the McDonnell Douglas DC-1030 trijet, following standard pre-flight procedure. I'll give you a basic how does a plane fly overview. And this is very basic. This is not the aerodynamics or whatever of the plane. This is just... HR. HR. Plane HR logistics, yeah. So basically, airlines have to submit the coordinates for each route, and those coordinates have to be approved by the air traffic controllers for each area that the flight runs through. So if you're going over, like, Europe and you're flying over 30 countries, you got to let them all know. Mm. Maybe in they have some kind of centralised system there, I'm not sure, but anyway. Then the pilots are given a pre-flight briefing and training about the route and the aircraft. Then on the day of the flight, the coordinates for the route are uploaded from the ground computer at the airport onto the plane computer so that the automated flight systems are able to operate. So the pilots are usually responsible for like taking off, landing doing manoeuvres, avoiding bad weather, kind of like adjusting the route where it needs to be to make the flight safe. But then the automated flight system can take over when the pilots deem that it's safe to do so, so they can kind of chill. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't really know that either. I'm so glad we know this now. Yeah. We've been hypothesising about planes for a long time. We have. So. Yeah, it's definitely no easy gig being a pilot. Like, I'm sure you don't just sit there and the computer does all the work. But, like, especially on a long flight like this, there needs to be, like, sections where, you know, you're both kind of resting. It's like cruise control. Yeah, cruise control. After a smooth takeoff, the flight headed towards Ross Island, which is the southernmost island in Antarctica that is accessible by sea and home to the largest Antarctic settlement. During their approach to the island, the pilots descended using a figure-eight manoeuvre through a gap in the clouds in order to obtain better visual contact with the landmarks on the island, giving passengers a better view. The plane was now flying around 2,000 to 3,000 feet, which is 600 to 900 metres, over the water. 
This altitude was much lower than the minimum safe altitude which was recommended for the route, and there were photographs from previous journeys which showed that this flouting of the altitude guidelines was a common occurrence. Captain Jim Collins radioed ahead to McMurdo Station, which was the base located on Ross Island, advising them that he would be dropping to 2,000 feet, and then he switched the plane back to the automated computer system. Visibility outside was good, but a phenomenon known as sector whiteout had occurred. The white clouds had blended with the snow-covered Mount Erebus, making it impossible for anyone on board to distinguish between the two. The pilots believed they were looking at the Ross Ice Shelf, but this was actually obstructed by Mount Erebus, which was now right ahead. While dangerous, this sector whiteout should not have been an issue. The plane had been switched to the automated computer system and was safely following along the approved route, or so they thought. At 12.49pm, the ground proximity warning system was activated, alerting the pilots that the plane was dangerously close to the ground. An alarm was sounded telling the pilots to pull up as flight engineer Gordon Brooks gave the pilots updates on their altitude, which was now 500 feet, and dropped rapidly to 400 feet moments later. The ground proximity warning system, coupled with the rapid drop in altitude, alerted the pilots that they were in fact headed towards the side of the mountain, and Captain Jim Collins immediately requested that the go-around power be applied, but there was nothing that could be done to prevent the disaster. Six seconds later, Air New Zealand Flight 901 crashed into the side of Mount Erebus and exploded on impact, instantly killing all 257 passengers and crew. Not long after the crash, McMurdo Station attempted to make contact with the flight, but received no response. They informed authorities in Auckland that contact with the flight had been lost and placed a United States search and rescue crew from the station on standby. At 2pm, more than an hour after the last transmission was made, the United States Navy launched the search and rescue mission, sending out six aircraft along the expected flight path. Back in New Zealand, when Flight 901 didn't arrive back in Christchurch at 6.05pm, it was not immediately apparent that there was anything wrong. The flight being slightly late in its return was not unusual, and families who were waiting at the airport were told not to worry. But as time went on, airport staff in Christchurch became increasingly concerned. At 9pm, three hours after their anticipated arrival, and 30 minutes after the aircraft would have run out of fuel, Air New Zealand made an announcement stating that they believed that Flight 901 was lost. At 12.55am, more than eight hours after the flight went missing, a United States Navy aircraft spotted debris on the side of Mount Erebus, but were unable to identify it. Visibility was poor and they couldn't get close enough in their plane. They didn't see any evidence of survivors, so returned to McMurdo Station to wait for morning. Probably a good time to note that it was the United States that primarily ran McMurdo Station, which was on the island. Oh, yeah. So that's why their, like, Navy was stationed there. Yeah. That's why they ran the rescue mission. Mm. At 9am, search and rescue crews were able to access the wreckage. A number of helicopters managed to land on the steep slopes of Mount Erebus, dropping off a number of rescuers. Using identifying features of the remaining fuselage, they were able to confirm that the debris belonged to Flight 901. They also sadly confirmed that there were no remaining survivors. A recovery operation began on the 29th of November, called Operation Overdue. This operation lasted 10 days until the 9th of December. However, the recovery efforts continued for many weeks after this. Operation Overdue was intricate and subject to a lot of scrutiny. This is partly because of the pressure placed on the joint US and New Zealand rescue team 
from international parties, particularly Japan. There had been a number of foreign tourists aboard Flight 901, including 24 from Japan, 22 from the US, 6 from the UK, and small numbers from Canada, Australia, France and Switzerland. The remaining 180 passengers and 20 crew were New Zealand nationals. The initial part of Operation Overdue focused on confirming that the wreckage was that of Flight 901. Large parts of the plane were recovered on the side of the mountain. The vertical stabiliser, a part of the main fuselage of the plane, was sent back to Auckland for formal identification, but a visible Koru logo, an image of an unfurling frond of the silver fern, told rescuers all they needed to know. This was missing Flight 901. The recovery of all 257 people on board was an insurmountable task. The impact of the crash and subsequent explosion meant much of the identifying information had been destroyed and fragmented human remains had been scattered along the mountainside. Record-keeping needed to be meticulous, which meant that the identification task took weeks and required input from a team of pathologists, dentists and police. Sometimes, something as small as a finger from which a print could be obtained or a set of keys in a pocket were all that investigators had to go off. Using these thorough investigative methods, 83% of passengers on board were able to be identified. Sadly, this means that the remains of 44 victims could not be individually identified among the debris. These passengers were mourned in a joint funeral service held on the 22nd of February the following year, almost three months after the crash. There is a memorial for these 44 unidentified victims at Waikumete Cemetery in Auckland. The memorial features a Japanese cherry blossom tree to commemorate the 24 Japanese passengers who died in the crash. Inspector Jim Morgan, who led the recovery operation, has told of the horrific scene they were met with and the traumatic nature of the recovery mission. The recovery process was detailed. All bodies and body parts were photographed, labelled and then packed into body bags. Inspector Morgan said the work was exhausting, even for experienced U.S. Navy personnel. Conditions didn't allow for rescuers to be ferried to and from the crash site every day, and the unrelenting Antarctic conditions meant that recovering the remains was time-sensitive. For these reasons, the team spent a week camping in polar tents among the debris and human remains, working 24 hours a day to prevent the loss of any evidence. For the first few days, there was no water on the site, which resulted in quite an unhygienic work environment. There was only one bowl for the almost 60 crew members to wash their hands in before eating, and very quickly the water turned black. Plate and utensils weren't washed between users to save water. To make it worse, their clothing became covered in black grease from handling the charred human remains and moving debris that had also been covered in this grease. This particularly affected their woolen gloves, which had stiffened and became impossible to work in after being saturated in this human grease. Soon, the recovery mission was met with another hurdle. Skua gulls, a large predatory bird, had discovered the human remains and began scavenging. The recovery team tried chasing them away, but there were too many. They tried scaring them off with flares, but the birds weren't deterred for long. The team could only watch the horrifying scene as the gulls picked at the corpses and diminished their chances of identifying the bodies. The best course of action was to collect all the remains and create large piles and bury them in snow to keep the birds away. There's not many scenarios where this kind of environment would come about. Yeah. Like, it's just a combination of so many things. Yeah. Like the explosion, and then it's in Antarctica, and then there's these birds. It really is the worst. 
Mm. Like the worst conditions you can ask for. Yeah. Freezing. Everything's kind of wet from the snow. You can't leave. You can't leave. You're on a steep-ass mountain. Mm. Just as the work was completed, the crew was met with poor weather conditions, which prevented the helicopters from accessing the site, essentially isolating them. Investigator Morgan recalls that the crew was allowed to have a party. In his own words, it was macabre to be letting their hair down among the human remains and crash debris, but conceded that the team needed to let off steam. The liquor that had survived the crash was distributed among the crew members. But unfortunately, there was another issue. They'd run out of cigarettes. All crew members and police on site handed in their personal supplies, which were then distributed equally. What if you had, like, really prepared, though, and bought heaps? Then you had to share them all. You'd be the man. That's true. Everyone would be like, hell yeah. Thanks, man. And I guess if later on you were like, oh, can I bum a dart? Mm. They'd let you. Well, they wouldn't. They'd run out. But if someone still had some that yeah. were actually yours originally, oh, you could pull out the, that's, that's mine. <laughs> right. They're talking about, like, they run out of, like, government-supplied cigarettes. Yeah, I think so. I think they had government-supplied. This was the 80s, the 70s. Yeah. Soon, the weather cleared and the helicopters were able to land. The bodies were loaded into cargo nets under the helicopters and taken back to McMurdo Station. While the recovery crew took some parts of the plane back to Auckland for the investigation, most of the wreckage still remains on the slopes of Mount Erebus. It is usually buried under a thick layer of snow, but during warmer periods where snow coverage recedes, the wreckage of the plane is visible from the air. The Mount Erebus disaster was the first fatal crash for Air New Zealand and remains the deadliest incident for the airline. With the recovery mission complete, Investigators turned their attention to the cause of the fatal crash. The official accident report was completed on June 12, 1980, by New Zealand's Chief Inspector of Air Accidents, Ron Chippendale. Ron must have not had a lot on his plate until this moment. That's true, yeah. Because this is the first fatal crash. Yeah. For Air, But there are other airlines, but Air New Zealand is the main one. Mm. And Ron clearly didn't have that much experience, because he really got criticised for his report. Oh. Yeah. This report identified pilot error as the principal cause of the accident, namely Captain Collins's decision to descend to 2,000 feet, which was significantly below the minimum altitude of 6,000 feet. However, even if Flight 901 adhered to the minimum altitude requirements and flew at 6,000 feet, it was tracking towards the summit of Mount Erebus, which stands at over 12,000 feet, meaning that the plane likely would have crashed anyway. This also poses the question... Why hadn't the previous 13 flights to Antarctica, which had flown at much lower altitudes, ever collided with Mount Erebus? The answers lie in a series of errors regarding the approved coordinates for the flights. The following findings were the result of a royal commission into the disaster completed by Justice Peter Mann. The initial error occurred when the coordinates were first submitted by Air New Zealand to the Civil Aviation Division of the New Zealand Department of Transport. The coordinates that were submitted differed from the coordinates that were entered into Air New Zealand's ground computer system. The approved coordinates had the flight travelling in a straight line towards the McMurdo Station navigation beacon, which would mean it would fly almost directly over the summit of Mount Erebus. A typing error meant that the coordinates entered into the Air New Zealand ground computer system took a more southerly flight path, taking a wide berth to the west of Mount Erebus. This meant that the flights had been avoiding Mount Erebus, and the minimum altitude requirements had not yet presented an issue. On the 14th of November, two weeks before the fatal flight, 
Captain Leslie Simpson took Flight 901 using the coordinates programmed into the ground computer, the McMurdo Sound route. However, he noticed that there was a large discrepancy between the approved route and the route that he had taken. This was caused by the incorrect input of coordinates of one of the beacons at McMurdo Station. After the flight, he alerted Air New Zealand authorities to this discrepancy, which prompted them to update the coordinates stored in the ground computers. This change occurred at 1.40am on the 28th of November, the morning of the fatal flight. The plan was then forwarded to the United States Air Traffic Controllers at McMurdo Station, but displayed the word McMurdo rather than the usual numerical coordinates of McMurdo Station. An inquiry after the accident has concluded that this was not protocol, and was likely an attempt to conceal the fact that the flight plan had been changed, because the US authorities would have lodged an objection, and that might have prevented the flight from going ahead that day. Further, the pilots were not notified that the coordinates had been updated, and prepared for the flight using the now outdated coordinates from the briefing on November 9th. At 7.21am, the crew on Flight 901 inputted the new coordinates from the ground computer into the plane computer, unknowingly setting the flight on a crash course towards Mount Erebus. For an unknown reason, charts of the Antarctic were withheld from the flight crew for planning purposes. The only charts available were those kept on the plane, which were not detailed enough to support comprehensive review of the coordinates. For this reason, the new coordinates were not double-checked against a topographical map of the island. If it had been, the crew would have noticed that the flight was now on a path towards the summit of Mount Erebus, and that the 6,000 feet altitude requirement would have been far too low. So in attempting to fix the initial error, Air New Zealand had sealed the fate of Flight 901. Between the pre-flight briefing attended by Captain Jim Collins and co-pilot Greg Casson on the 9th of November, and their flight on the 28th, the coordinates stored in the ground computer had been modified. The pilots were not briefed on this change, and neither were the team at McMurdo Station, who approved the descent to 2,000 feet. With the whiteout conditions, the crew were unable to visually identify Mount Erebus until it was too late. The ultimate cause of the crash was deemed to be the failure by Air New Zealand to inform the pilots of the change in coordinates. This is what would have avoided the crash. What irony that the original incorrect coordinates were preventing the planes from crashing into the mountain. Yeah, exactly. If that error had just continued, undetected... Yeah then nothing yeah there wouldn't have been a crash yeah so the original coordinates had them fly over the summit of mount erebus yeah so they would have adjusted altitude to be higher yeah right so i think coordinates and altitude are kind of separate but influence each other obviously yeah yeah but because they had just been flying to the west of mount erebus it had been fine to descend well below the six thousand feet limit yeah as there was no mountain. There was no mountain. To the west. Yeah. Of the mountain. Yeah. It was like a valley kind of thing. Yeah. It was the shelf, mm-hmm. the ice shelf, which had been fine. And the air traffic controllers at McMurdo Station knew it was fine. They could see the plane on the radar and where it was, so knew it was fine. Until it wasn't, because the ground computer coordinates that got uploaded onto the plane had been changed. Despite the Marne report, which found that Air New Zealand was at fault for the crash rather than the pilots, there was no criminal punishment for Air New Zealand. The only consequence was that Marne had ordered Air New Zealand to pay half the costs of his inquiry. However, Air New Zealand applied to the Court of Appeal to have this cost order set aside and to have some of the facts of the Marne report reviewed, 
including the finding that Air New Zealand management concocted a conspiracy to commit perjury at potential hearings in order to cover up the mistakes of the ground crew. What's perjury? Um, lying in court. Oh. Yeah. Why you all got to come up with a term for everything? <laughs> Don't know. I could also say concocted a conspiracy to lie in court. Yeah, you could say that. Mann had accused Air New Zealand of, quote, an orchestrated litany of lies by hiding evidence and lying to investigators. The Court of Appeal did set aside the costs, but didn't make any findings around the facts of the Mann inquiry. Like they attempted to make a finding but d- couldn't? No. Sometimes the Court of Appeal is just like, mm, we're not going to touch that. Oh, they were just like, nah, we're not They were gonna. like, mm, not important. Oh, okay. Yeah. They probably made some kind of, they're called obita comments. Another, we have come up with another phrase for that, which is just kind of like side comments. Yeah. They probably made some side comments about it, but they were like, eh, it doesn't matter. Right. They do that kind of often. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mann appealed this costs finding to the Privy Council, which ultimately agreed with the Court of Appeal that Air New Zealand should not have to pay costs. Because the appeal to the Privy Council wasn't about the findings of the inquiry, just the costs finding, they weren't being tasked to inquire about the facts that Mann set down. Because Mann only asked the Privy Council whether or not New Zealand should have to pay the costs, mm-hmm. then they weren't being asked about what they thought about the facts of his report. Right. So then they didn't need to say anything about it. Oh. But they did. They did comment on the integrity of Mann's report. During the hearing, Air New Zealand sought to discredit the Mann report in order to avoid paying for it, and in the process introduced some scepticism around the findings of the report. The Privy Council concluded that Mann had acted in breach of natural justice when he made the finding that there was a conspiracy among Air New Zealand officials to cover up the accident, and that this finding wasn't supported by evidence. Why are we focusing so much on the aftermath behaviour? They're conspiring to lie, Mm. and not looking more at, like, all the missteps that led to the accident, like the before behaviour. I think the after behaviour is kind of an indicator, or at least Mann is saying it's an indicator that they knew that there was mistakes being made. Right. And they were covering it up. Yeah. Yeah. And Air New Zealand was definitely most pressed about him being like, you made all this up and you were covering it up. And they were like, no, it was an accident. Right. So they didn't really like him saying all that stuff. Yeah. The accident prompted the international fleet of McDonnell Douglas DC-10 aircrafts to be grounded for five weeks while modifications were completed responding to issues from Flight 901, as well as the crash of American Airlines Flight 191 in Chicago six months earlier. While the planes were reinstated, they were soon replaced with Boeing 747s in 1982, three years after the crash. Following this, Air New Zealand suspended all Antarctic sightseeing flights, an Australian carrier Qantas followed suit shortly after. While Australia resumed limited Antarctic flights in 1994, an Antarctic flight didn't leave New Zealand until 2013, when Air New Zealand chartered a Qantas Boeing 747 for a sightseeing flight. On the 28th of November 2019, which marked the 40th anniversary of the disaster, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern issued the first formal apology to the families of the crash victims. She expressed regret on behalf of Air New Zealand for the accident and apologised, quote, on behalf of the airline, which 40 years ago failed in its duty of care to its passengers and staff. Now's probably a good time to note that at the time of the crash, 
Air New Zealand was actually owned by the New Zealand government. It was still state-run. Oh. Yeah. And the government said nothing? Yeah. <sighs> I know. And that's I think that's why, like, some of the other countries as well were, like, kind of came down pretty hard because mm. it was a government-run thing. Mm. Yeah. Initially, a wooden cross was placed on the mountain above McMurdo Station as a memorial, but this was replaced shortly after with an aluminium cross, which could withstand the harsh Antarctic conditions. In 2010, a 26-kilogram sculpted koru, which is like a... It's like a Māori art motif, mm. a spiral. A spiral, because that's what the fern does. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily and have to it... be a fern, Yeah, but can be. It's just like, it's like a pattern. It was placed next to the cross containing letters written by the families of the victims. There have been plans for further memorials in New Zealand, but these have been met with some resistance from the local people. For example, a memorial planned for the Parnell Rose Gardens in Auckland has been delayed after local residents said that it would, quote, destroy the ambience of the park. I did see a picture of what this was proposed to look like. Yeah. And it really wasn't that obstructive. That's the thing with memorials, It wasn't like a big old plane. Like, it was just a big, long, like, stick thing out of the ground. Right. Yeah. I feel like, if anything, memorials are meant to bring, like, a nice closure kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. As they are designed. Yeah. So... That's interesting. Parnell, though. What's Parnell? Parnell is like oh, they like the... higher class suburb, mm. I would say. It's definitely a wealthier suburb. Mm-hmm. Like, it's nicer. And it's near the water, so it's, you know, well, so is all of New Zealand. But Yeah. So maybe that's why. Mm. Yeah. So Air New Zealand did not pay for this financially. No. I mean, the only way they paid for it was, I guess, through harm to their reputation. But... Also not. Yeah. Because they are, like, the main airline still yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't really experience any kind of consequence. Damn. Yeah. How did that just slip like that? There wasn't, like, a lot of evidence, like, of the cause. Like, both the initial investigation report and the Marne report were kind of discredited in the end, in a way. So whether or not that either of those would have met the higher bar of beyond a reasonable doubt in like a criminal circumstance is probably like hard to say. Right. This is, I guess, one of the trickier ones where like so many people would have come into play of that change being made that who are you meant to like? Yeah. You can't. Who does it come down to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then like, can the company itself, like, is it the director? Was there a director? Because it was government run. Did it have less legal liability because it was run by the government? Mm. Yeah. I think they definitely pushed the, like, accident narrative. Yeah. Do you think Peter Mann's report was, like, discredited because he kind of took it too far? Yeah. He was like, oh, conspiracy, and that's when he sent it. It was too far gone. And then by the time it got to the Privy Council, Air New Zealand had this, like, obviously very talented team of lawyers and they just like went through each item of evidence that he brought up and just kind of like discredited it and said that it shouldn't have been used in his report. So then all the evidence was kind of like gone. Like it was there, but it was unusable. What? Because any other court would just be like, oh, that. Oh my gosh. That's not very good evidence. How? That, is, that is black magic. Yeah. I guess they could have reasoned it away with the fact that the new coordinates were sent through with 
that name, the same name, with no indication of an update. And this was not protocol, right? But it's kind of an argument as to whether that was an honest mistake or if it was a conspiracy to mm, cover up. I see. You know? So yeah. I guess they could have been like, no, like, it was an error. It was just a mistake. Human it wasn't, error. It wasn't an intent to, yeah. like, keep it concealed. I don't know, though. It seems kind of dodgy to me. Yeah. It does seem, seem a bit fishy to me, too. But it also comes across as some 1.45 a.m. energy. Yeah, that's so true. If you're doing that work at so early in the morning. Someone was like, get the intern to update the thing. And yeah. then the intern's like, oh. So tired. Yeah, that's I don't know. That's true, yeah, true. That's the kind of mistake you would make at that time of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's what they went with. Yeah. But I'm, I don't know, I'm not sure. That Either being way. said, I recently flew an Air New Zealand flight. Oh yeah, was it good? To New Zealand. Yes, it was quite nice actually. That's good. They had champagne because it was the first flight from the travel bubble opening. Oh, fun. And every Air New Zealand flight, they come around with a basket of lollies at the end for you to like suck on when the plane is descending so your airs don't pop i love that and the final thing is they have very good flight safety videos oh yeah they put a lot of money into that so does Qantas. that's so interesting so annoyingly it is a good airline yeah but this this stuff 40 years ago Mm. that's some dodgy business Mm -hmm. yeah i think this even prompted some like pretty key changes in the way that like, you know how we have mandatory, like, you have to record everything and you have to record what the plane is doing at all the time? Yeah. I don't think that was the case back then. Right. But now, yeah, like, these kind of accidents and there was a couple others around the same time, we were like, we need more data. Mm. This is quite putting you on the spot. If you could come up with a best kind of umbrella definition of crime, mm. what is the concept of it, you know? Yeah, I think if I, because I've studied it for so long, crime, criminality, criminal behavior, Mm -hmm. and its relation to the law, and then what is a crime within the law, I would avoid all of that if I was explaining it to a five-year-old. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I would say something like, a crime is an action which some way, like, breaks the rules of society that we have kind of set and has a negative impact yes not necessarily a crime is breaking the law because you could argue whether there are certain things that is technically a breach like there are certain things which is technically breaking the law but you might not say that that's a crime oh yeah maybe our laws are wrong like jaywalking yeah jaywalking that doesn't hurt anyone maybe the jaywalker Mm, i see what you mean yeah so If I was describing a criminal, I would say someone who is consistently out of step with the majority of society when it comes to their values or the means by which they have to achieve certain goals. So would I say that this is a crime? Maybe not by that definition. Is it, or maybe is it a crime? Yes. Are Air New Zealand criminals? No. Hmm. It's like a, it's a crime to all the victims Mm. as in it shouldn't have happened to them. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the question is unanswered. It's hard to say. Remains unsolved. Yeah. You can make up your own definition. Yeah. Go for that. Yeah. That is all for today's case. Thank you for joining us again. And maybe we'll walk the line some more. Yeah. Maybe we will. Crime or not crime. Crime or not crime. Mm. But yeah, thanks for entertaining us. 
Hopefully we also entertained you. you. Great. Well, we'll see you next time. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.